Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and thank you for choosing to worship with us this weekend. I love the Christ Chapel family, and I'm so glad that you are a part of it. I've been fired up for this Sunday for a little while. Uh, a few years back, Jen and I decided that we were going to take on a task that I'm told some marriages don't survive, and that was to design and build a home together. If you've ever done it, you know how stressful that can be and, and how many... Um, decision points you can come to as a couple. And it was a very stressful time for us, but also some, some very exciting time as we went through those different phases. But one of the most exciting phases for us when we were building our home was, you know, the part, they, they certainly build the foundation, but then they put up the frame. And it's amazing how fast the frame goes up. I mean, it's like a couple of days and those people are done. And you're like, is this stable? I just don't know. You did it so fast. I don't know if we should live there. But, you know, it's all framed and you see the studs and you're able to, to walk through it. And, you know, the sheetrock isn't up yet. And it's, it was actually a pretty exciting time where we could walk through it and kind of envision, you know, okay, this is going to be the living room. This is going to be the bedroom, etc. And you could uh, imagine and, and dream of what our, our future was going to be like and, and what our family would do in those particular rooms. It was a very exciting time. But I want you to imagine what it would be like if someone walked through a home just the same, but it didn't get there because it was built. It got there because of tragedy or an accident or a natural disaster. If somebody was walking through their home that was stripped to the studs, they had a home that had sheetrock. They had a home that had family that had all the furnishings in it, but those were all stripped away from them. Now they're walking through the home, not with hope, not with great imagination and anticipation for the future, but with more of a helpless, hopeless, despondent countenance, wondering where do we start again? How do we rebuild when our lives have been stripped to the studs? You see, I think 2020 has torn through our lives like a hurricane this past year and stripped many of our lives to the studs. It's torn through our lives and stripped away a lot of the security that we feel, certainly a lot of the comforts that we've had, a lot of the normalcy in our lives. And many of us feel like with our lives stripped to the studs, we're just looking at it in shambles and we don't know where to begin to rebuild. See, we are in desperate need of a rebuilding project in our lives, uh, whether that's individually or corporately. I mean, if you think about it individually, maybe you this year need a rebuilding job in relationships. There has been so much anxiety and animosity and anger between people in our world this past year. And as we said last week and two weeks before, just because the calendar turned doesn't mean that all that stuff would dissipate or disappear. And maybe your relationships have been <laughs> stripped away from all of those uh, normalcy that you've had. The, the kinship, the friendship is all gone. And you need to rebuild some relationships with friends or neighbors or coworkers. Now, we need to rebuild some families. The stress that our families were under this past year was enormous. And maybe you've gotten crossway with your spouse. 
Uh, maybe you haven't been in a good relationship with a parent or with a child. Maybe you've even gone through a divorce this past year and you feel like your life has been stripped to the studs. Or maybe you're in a whole new career. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe, maybe you're in search of a job and you're looking for a reboot, a rebuild, and you don't know where to begin. Do you pursue the same field? Do you take on a new task? Do you go back to school? You're looking at what was left and you don't know where to begin. See, many of us in our lives, we need that individual rebuild. We've got a rebuilding project and we don't exactly know where to start, but guess what? We're in a rebuilding project as a church. I remember a, a couple months ago, our executive pastor, Bill Egner, and I were talking and he said, Cody, we are in the midst of the greatest rebuilding project our church has ever seen. We've, we've had a lot of building projects and we praise God for all the things that he's done at the Fort Worth campus, at the West campus, and what he's gonna do at the South campus. We know how to do building projects. We don't know how to do rebuilding projects. When our lives have been so disrupted, when our patterns have been disrupted and par portions of our lives have been destroyed and people have even died as a part of our fellowship, and we're looking to rebuild our lives spiritually. We're looking to rebuild the church. I'm not hopeless though. And I don't think we're helpless. Even though we have a great rebuilding project ahead of us, our God is with us and our God is for us. But we're gonna take on this rebuilding project with God at the center of it. So if you would, open your Bibles to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter one, and we're gonna be in verses one to four. Today, we're starting a new series called Rebuilding. And we're gonna base it off of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And I wanna give you a little bit of background before we jump into Nehemiah. This will be uh, all the historical stuff. Um, we'll continue to give you historical uh, things as we go along throughout this series, but this series is gonna take us close to Easter. But I wanna give you all these historical things because these are probably all the things that you're going, well, Cody, this is why this doesn't apply to my life. Let me just go ahead and get those out of the way then since they don't really apply and give the foundation for you, and then we'll continue to build it up. But who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a Jewish cupbearer to, to King Artaxerxes, and all this is on your sermon notes, by the way, and you're, you will need those sermon notes because there's gonna be stuff that's not gonna come up on the screen. But Nehemiah was a Jewish cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes is a Persian king, and we'll talk more about the kingdom of Persia in just a moment. This is uh, about 445 BC. Uh, it's after the first and second return of the exiles. The Jews had, had if you'll remember, the, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, completely destroyed Jerusalem, uh, destroying the walls, destroying the temple, everything. They tear it down in 586 BC. And so they, they carry off the exiles uh, into Babylonia. Then they get to the Persians come into, the Persians and Medes come into power. And then they say that those Jews who were exiled can now go back to Jerusalem if they would choose and they can rebuild their culture, rebuild their worship, rebuild their identity, rebuild the, the center of their, their city, everything that they knew culturally. 
But this is after, Nehemiah is coming in after two groups had already returned. And he is in Susa of Persia. Now we have a map of where Susa is. Uh, Susa was far, far east. It's probably about 800-ish miles away from Jerusalem. So you can see where it is, modern-day Iran. Uh, And what is he doing? He is going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been destroyed 141 years uh, prior to him. That's what he's doing. So we're starting, though, in Susa. That's kind of the overview of the book. So see, everything that had, had been normal for the Jewish people had all been taken away. It had all been stripped away. They had been exiled, taken away from their homeland, Uh, They're in a secular foreign culture that does not know and does not really support even their worship of God. They're they're without a home. They're living as aliens in this foreign land. They're not home yet. And Nehemiah is going to begin this great rebuilding project, a rebuilding project that, spoiler alert, he builds it in 52 days, this wall. But if you think about it, it doesn't happen for 141 years. Even though groups have been going back, this wall has not been rebuilt. This needs an act of God, that a wall would be built around the temple, the center of worship. And so As we go throughout this series, I want you to understand that what we're going to be talking about is not just the rebuilding of a physical wall. Nehemiah is going to talk about the rebuilding of a physical wall in chapters 1 to 7, and then he's going to use chapters 8 through 13 to talk about how he's going to build the worship culture amongst the people. But this is all about the the building up of the worshipers of God, the people of God. They need to get back into the rhythms and the patterns of worship. They need to understand who God is. They need to have community and fellowship with one another. I mean, this is in our kitchen, folks. This is right where you're living every day. This is going to apply to us. So I just wanted to tell you, my my goals for the series here, our goals are first, to correlate the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem with our current rebuilding of not only our our church life, but our Christian lives individually. And just, just so you know, again, the, the temple is at the center of Jerusalem and the walls are around the outside. God has to be at the center of everything we are rebuilding this next year. If he's not at the center, it's not worth it. He's going to be at the center of everything we do and everything we rebuild. And I pray it's that way in your life as well. Second, want to unify us in the task of doing God's work is it will take all of us giving all we've got. It's going to take us all. And you're going to see throughout Nehemiah that he gave different portions of the wall to different people because everybody has to play a part if we're going to do this thing together. Third, Inspire us to continue God's work amidst obstacles and opposition. This work was was not unopposed. It was constantly opposed, constantly under attack from the outside and from the inside. And folks, we have to expect that when we begin to do things for God, this world is not for us, but God is for us. And he says, therefore, who can be against us? 
And so we've got to continue to be inspired that our God has got this and all we have to do is follow in his footsteps. Continue to follow him and he will help us despite the opposition. And then finally, highlight prayer as an undergirding action amidst the work. Nehemiah records more prayer, his own prayers, and how many, time he's, how many times he's prayed in this book than more than I can imagine in any of the other minor prophets. This is about God, we have to seek you. We have to seek your wisdom. We have to have your help, your guidance, your direction. We, we need to listen to him. And we've got to be people of prayer, which we will talk about. And so we've used this idea of this mosaic throughout this series. Mosaic is a beautiful picture of what God can do and what we've seen God do in our own lives and throughout history that a mosaic is, are all these colorful but very uh, sharp and broken pieces of either pottery or, or glass or, or plates, cups, any of those kind of things. And those things that are shattered can be held together and can be formed together and molded together into something beautiful, something that, that speaks, something that declares goodness and glory. That's what we are. We are broken people that God has brought together and he binds us together by the power of his spirit to make something beautiful, to make something that speaks of his design, of his character, that speaks of him. And that's what God is doing with us and will continue to do with us again as long as we keep him at the center. And so that's where we're headed with this rebuilding series through Nehemiah. So today we're just going to study verses one to four. And so I want to read it as a whole, just so you kind of get a, a, a short idea about it. And then we're going to go back and break it down and unpack it together. So Nehemiah chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the, the citadel, means the, the capital, the fortress, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. That was the region where Jerusalem was. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And may God bless the reading of his word. We're gonna stop there for this morning because we need to understand that this is a great rebuilding project that Nehemiah takes on and we know that God is in it and he carries it to completion, which is a great reminder for us of Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That God is working in and through you. We just need to submit to his will. But where do you begin that rebuilding process? You can't hire this thing out. 
You can't, uh, we can employ help, certainly, but there's a role that you can play in this rebuilding process. So what I want to do is I want to look at where Nehemiah began the rebuilding process and then apply it to our lives and where we are today. So first, God's people begin this rebuilding process when they align their identity with their primary allegiance. Rebuilding can begin when God's people align their identity with their primary allegiance. If you go back to verses one and two, let's, let's look back at it again. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I've always can't pronounce that very well. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. That was about the month of November, December. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa of Persia, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So these are people not from Susa, they came from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now I'm gonna have to fast forward to give you a little bit of context. Remember, he's in Susa, the, the capital of Persia, but he is Jewish. Where, where his ancestry is from is the region of Judah, where Jerusalem was. And he's got a brother, he says, who comes to visit him. Now, we don't know if this is a literal brother or figurative brother of nationality, a fellow Israelite. I think it's probably, it may be his actual brother, but we, none of us know. And so he comes from the, that region and it's funny because he asks him about two things. He asks him about the place of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. How, how's the place? How are the people? And now here's the reason why he's asking those things. First, he's asking about the Jerusalem because that's the place where God chose to put his name. That, that, that's where he chose for his name to dwell. This city will represent me. And as this city goes, so his reputation, in a sense, goes. That when my people are worshiping me, I will uphold this, this city. It was the epicenter for worship of Yahweh. It's where ceremonial worship took place, sacrificial worship took place. It's where community took place, where everyone joined from wherever they were to come and worship the Lord together. It was a sacred place. So he asked, how is Jerusalem? And he also asked, how are the people? How, how are those, those ones who were exiled, who had escaped, who had survived? And he said, what did they survive? Well, they survived the conquest. When Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 from Babylonia to conquer Jerusalem, and he tore down the walls, he tore down the temple, he destroyed the whole city, he also killed the Israelites. But there were some who had escaped, some who were exiled. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. How are those who survived? Now, obviously, there are generations in between there, but how are those? And you go, why would he ask about those specific people, and why would he ask about that specific place? It's because he was one of them. He was a Jew. These are, these are his people, that's who he primarily identified. He is in Susa and he is actually a cupbearer to the king to fast forward a little bit, which means he, he is right-hand man of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. 
He is, in the, he is the vice president, in a sense, of Persia. He is this civil servant who is almost as the, at the highest place that he could ever be. And you go, he's concerned about somebody who's 800 miles away, about a place who's 800 miles away, because that was his primary allegiance. His primary allegiance was as a person of God. You see, if we are going to begin our rebuilding project, we have to rebuild with your identity on being a Christian first and foremost. You've got to begin rebuilding your identity on being a Christian first and foremost. I believe that as Christians, we are going through an identity crisis that there have been so many causes or groups that have tried to align with our Christian identity that our identity has been in question. Our primary allegiance has been in question. And let's just state it and what it's going to be and what it has to be. Folks, you have to be a Christian first and foremost. We are Christians before we're anything else. We are Christians before we are any nationality. Before, before you're an American, you're a Christian. Before you're a Brazilian, before you're uh, an El Salvadorian, it doesn't matter where you live, you're a Christian first. Christianity is not bound by geography, nor is our Christianity tied up in any kind of race. It doesn't matter if you're Caucasian, African-American, Asian-American, Mexican-American, it doesn't matter. We are a Christian first. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter male, female, we are Christians first. And it feels like in our world today that we have these competing allegiances that are fighting to be primary. Folks, before we're Republican or Democrat, you're Christian first. And, when, and, here's, and here's why I'm hammering this point home is because when those allegiances get muddled or fuzzy, our influence in this world for Christ is compromised. People begin to say, oh, to be a Christian, I have to be that too? Uh, no, you don't have to be that too. You have to be a Christian. I, I wanna convert people to, to Christianity, to Christ. I wanna see people's lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit more before they switch their allegiance or their nationality or their passport. I don't care about those things. Those things will not last. The kingdom of God will go on forever. You have to, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, our primary allegiance is as a Christian, and I am a citizen of the kingdom of God regardless of who is in power next week or the week after that or the decade after this. No matter what country I'm in, you can take me out of America and guess what? I'm still gonna be a Christian. Is that that your attitude? It's not gonna be convenient anymore, folks, to be a Christian in our world. And you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to stand up and stand out for Christ and Christ alone because it's his transformational power that will transcend all of those things. 
that really in the end don't matter. I, I, I love our country and I'm so thankful to live in America. I'm so thankful for those that continue to fight for our, our freedoms that we have today and who have in the past. And I'm not gonna take that for granted. That's why I'm going to continue to speak of Christ and use my freedom of speech for Jesus' sake and continue to use my freedom to worship, to come and worship and gather with the community. But I'm a Christian first and foremost, and so are you. Don't let your allegiance be questioned because your influence will be compromised. And I'll give you a great example of that, folks, where our influence is being compromised and where our allegiance is being questioned is this past week, when there's somebody going into the Capitol with a, a flag that says Jesus saves, what do you think that says about Christianity as a whole? Who's running in with Jesus saves, yet a life is taken. Didn't Jesus tell Peter to put down his sword? Those seem incongruent. That's exactly what I'm talking about here. If our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus, then we adopt his means, his methods to live in this world. Not other means, not other methods. It's his way and his way alone. You see, God is all in the business of using people who are in secular societies to do great things for him. If you even think about the time frame where Nehemiah is right now, Nehemiah is in a totally foreign land and God is going to use him to do something great for his sake and his kingdom and his people. He does the same thing in the Babylonian area with, with uh, era with Daniel. He does the same thing with Esther who becomes queen of Persia. I mean, God is in this business of doing something great, but it's these people who have identified their primary allegiance as him and him alone, not muddled, not, not a compromised allegiance. It's aligning our allegiance to him and to him alone. If we're gonna begin rebuilding with God at the center of our lives, then we have to make him our primary allegiance. Second, God's people have to recognize the vulnerabilities that cause others harm. We have to recognize the vulnerabilities that can cause other people harm. If you look at verse three, Nehemiah says that those who brought a report, he says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, well, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what he's talking about, the, the, the people there, um, the words that are used are, they're miserable. And, and they're in, and you go, why are they in shame? That word shame actually means it, um, a piercing. They're, they're piercing opposition, piercing words that are coming against them from the enemies in the land. You see, they don't have the wall around them and the security to be able to build the temple and to be able to worship God. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to attack. And that's what he's bringing out here. And so Nehemiah recognizes that and says, man, if, if we're gonna rebuild anything, they've gotta have the security of the wall around them. See, God's people, they've gotta listen for those vulnerabilities that can cause other people harm. And we've gotta start there as well. We've gotta rebuild our concern for others who are vulnerable and in distress. 
I have no doubt that as Christians, we have the truth. Jesus is on the throne right now and he's not getting off ever. His kingdom will, will endure forever. We win in the end. I, I know that and I have no doubt about that. But I am concerned about how we share that message with people. You see, we are supposed to speak the truth in love. And I think sometimes we've gone from speaking the truth in love to shouting the truth without love. And we've disregarded our real concern for anybody. And we just say, you're wrong and I'm right. And that's not the way that Jesus handled his uh, business and affairs and the way that he heralded the good news. Certainly, he told them the truth. Certainly, he told them where they were wrong. But he did it in love. You see, we will continue to speak the truth in love, but I think we need to begin to show the truth in love. You gotta, you gotta show people that you love them. There's that old saying, nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. Does this world even know that we care about them? Do the people in and around you know that you care for their soul? That you do care about how their lives are going? That you care about where they will spend eternity? That you care if they're struggling financially? That you care if their marriage is on the rocks? Or you just say, I told you so, you're wrong. That's your bed, you lie in it. I just, I just don't see Jesus handling it that way. And we've got to rebuild our concern for those around us. There, there are people that are vulnerable to attack today, very vulnerable. And we've got to step in the gap, just like Nehemiah stepped in the gap. And don't let it be lost on you. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And for our church's history, we've always uh, uh, declared and made it very explicit that we are for life at our church. We are, we are pro-life. And that is not a political statement. That is a biblical statement. And I will, I'll tell you why we are that way from a biblical standpoint. This is on your sermon notes, and I want you to see. The biblical reasons that we're concerned for the vulnerable life of the unborn is first because God has a purpose for every life that begins at conception. Psalm 139 tells us that, that he has knit that person together and therefore has a purpose for them. Second, that God creates every person in his image. To take the image of God seriously, you have to protect life. Third, God explicitly condemns murder. And fourth, God punishes those who do not protect life. And you see that especially throughout the whole Old Testament. Those who did not honor life, those were the nations that crumbled. We are unapologetically pro-life because God is pro-life. God is for life. And the downstream consequences, folks, and I haven't even told you about, and I'm not gonna go into the biblical, I mean, uh, the biological reasons or the psychological reasons, the sociological reasons, all of those things, the consequences that, that continue to ripple out from that decision about life. That's who we are. And I know, I know, statistics tell us that many of you have been affected by this issue in negative ways. And I want you to know that rebuilding can begin today. I don't condemn you. 
There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is redemption in Jesus. And I, and I pray that you would give him a chance, that you would give us a chance to show you that love because I'm not gonna shout it at you, but to show it to you and walk along that path to understand how God values life. See, as God's people, we've gotta to begin to watch out for those vulnerabilities and to speak up for those who are in harm and have a care about the world instead of sitting in our citadel and shouting down at everybody who's wrong. And then finally, God's people have to be moved to engage the power of prayer. If we're gonna begin the rebuilding process, we have to be moved to engage the power of prayer. Nehemiah takes a, a very different posture than what many people take when they hear of a problem. If you look at verse four, he says, and as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I love how he says that. As soon as I heard, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. This is completely different than our culture today. If we were to write Nehemiah's response to what he just heard in a culturally relevant way of what, what most people in our day do, it would say, as soon as he heard these words, he went and fired off an Instagram post or Facebook post or something online on social media to react to the situation, to let everybody know how they felt about it. And what Nehemiah did was he went and he sat and he wept and he prayed. And we live in such a knee-jerk culture right now where if you, take a, if, if you take a beat to rest or to stop or to think, you are held as silent and complicit. And that is just not true. I mean, doesn't James tell us, be slow to speak, be quick to listen, Folks, we've got to be biblically sound. We can't be reactive to everything that culture is asking us to react to. We've got to be slow to speak. We've got to be quick to listen. And Nehemiah was quick to pray. He decided that that was going to be his posture, was on his knees. See, we've got to rebuild our commitment to the practice of prayer. See, what Nehemiah does here when he prays is he waits. He doesn't react. He doesn't overreact. It calms his heart. It clears his vision. God shows him the path forward, and we've got to do the same thing. We've got to be people who practice prayer. And let me just tell you what kind of prayers that we're going to begin praying. This is, I'm going to confess to you, this is, this is my own fault. My prayers have been too small. And I don't say that piously or self-righteously. I'm, I'm honestly confessing it to you. Folks, we've got to begin to pray bigger prayers. We have to begin to pray for revival in our city and in our country. That God would move people to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, and to turn to him for life. Those are big things that God would move a people's heart and turn it back to him. 
Our prayers have been too small. Yes, God wants to hear about those things going on in our family, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those things. Yes, God wants to hear about things going on with first responders, and we are gonna continue to pray for first responders and schools opening and city governments and all those things. But guys, if God is big, our prayers have to be bigger. They have to be. I don't want to leave the biggest, the biggest weapon in a sense, the power of prayer on the shelf, the biggest tool that God has when he says, use it, call on my name and I'll do great and unsearchable things that you have never seen. I wanna be a part of that rebuilding project. Would you join me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your desire to not only build up your name, but to build a people that are for your name. I just pray, Lord God, that we would open our hearts to you. that we would hear what you're saying to us about the areas that we need to rebuild, that we need to align our allegiance to you as our primary identity, areas where we need to revive our concern for others and engage in the power of prayer. Move us, Lord God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.